0: Time has come. Is we've got to go the extra step.
1: From the political science department at UW Madison, no compromise.
2: We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers.
1: Geez, they're they're trying to they're
2: trying to balance
1: the power here.
2: And I'm Claire Salome. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 10:50 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we're excited to talk with Professor Tracy Holloway, the Gaylord Nelson Distinguished Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Holloway holds joint appointments in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences. She also serves as the team lead for the NASA Health and Air Quality Applied Sciences team, which connects NASA data with stakeholders interested in air quality management and public health. Professor Holloway describes herself as an air quality scientist working at the intersection of energy, climate, and public health. We think this all sounds very cool, and we're going to ask her about this fascinating cluster of research she's involved in, as well as some of her teaching and policy interests and the initiatives that she's involved in right now. Since this is your first time with us, we want to say thank you so much for being here today, Professor Holloway. It's really a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Would we be able to start talking about you and your background and sort of your teaching and research interests?
0: Sure. So, um, I'm a professor in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and also in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences. And I describe myself as an air quality scientist because I study the chemicals in the air, but also how they relate to energy sources and other emissions like wildfires health impacts, like asthma or shortened life expectancy, and also the policy context. Because in the United States, we've been regulating air pollution on a national scale since 1970. And air pollution is a big issue for international development and ties in with climate planning and solutions. So. You know, I sort of take all of the perspectives, mostly from a scientific angle, but you really can't look at the science without thinking about who's using the science and what are the drivers.
2: And how did you get into this? Were you always interested in environmental politics, like as a kid and in high school, or was it not until you got further into your college career?
0: I was always interested in policy and politics, including political science. I took AP political science as a high schooler, and I thought about that as a major when I went to college, but in my freshman dorm, there were a lot of scientists and engineers and... I was taking an introductory chemistry class, an introductory math class, and I really thought that those were going to be my last math and science classes before moving on in the social sciences, but I ended up liking them a lot, and having a peer group that was very pro-science and pro-engineering helped me kind of think outside of what I had originally expected to do, And so I majored in applied math. And at the time, I really thought I would still kind of use that to move into economics, law, policy. And I was thinking that all the way through my senior year. But the summer before my senior year, I applied for internships. And I applied to everything from the FBI to the New York State Prosecutor's Office to a bank in Chicago to NASA. And I ended up getting a summer internship NASA. And that was really the first time that I thought about science as a calling and the idea that my applied math could support scientific analysis in addition to, or in lieu of, in my case, like economic or policy or business applications. And so that sort of opened my thinking to thinking about geoscience. And I applied to graduate programs, really having no idea where I would get accepted and somewhere in math, and somewhere in engineering, and somewhere in atmospheric science, and you know, seeing where I got in and going to visit the campuses, I thought it was so cool how math could be applied to answer atmospheric questions like predicting hurricanes or understanding the weather. And I got to, um, I started at Princeton in a PhD program in atmospheric and oceanic science, and I really liked it in some ways. But about a year in, I thought to myself, wait, how did I get here? I started college. Wanting to go into policy, and and my dad's a lawyer, and my mom was in uh, accounting and business, and I guess I was just sort of having this crisis of thinking, you know, how did I wind up as a scientist? And um, I considered dropping out of my PhD program and you know moving to Washington DC, but at the time Princeton was just launching a new program in science, technology, and environmental policy through their. Um, public policy school at the time called the Woodrow Wilson School and so I ended up being one of the early participants in that program and I added policy into my dissertation and had a co-advisor on my PhD from more of a policy perspective and I ended up doing a PhD looking at how air pollution from different countries in Asia was affecting each other And that's a question with a lot of policy implications. You know, how do international players contribute to each other's air pollution? Um, And how do international treaties play a role in solving those problems? But it's a problem that can only be addressed really with computer models of the atmosphere because air pollution doesn't come with an import-export label. So if you want to know where air pollution came from, these advanced atmospheric models are a really valuable tool even in that policy application. And um, from there, I went and did a postdoc at Columbia University, focused more on public health, because the real reason we regulate air pollution and have a lot of policies on the books is primarily to protect public health. And I felt like I didn't have a a deep enough understanding of how those health connections took shape. So that was uh, the sort of health side of things was more the focus of my postdoctoral work. And then I was hired here at Wisconsin in a program in energy. And again, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't think of atmosphere, air pollution as an energy issue, but, you know, air pollution regulations are a big factor um, shaping our current energy system in the United States and the impact of energy on the environment is one of the big drivers of air pollution around the world. So I was really excited to be part of that initiative here at Wisconsin. And I think, you know, all of these factors fit together in my current work, we're trying to connect energy and health and air pollution in a decision making context.
1: Yeah, you really connect the dots of between your research and policy projects in a really interesting way. Despite you know that I think some people have a bit of trouble understanding how linked environmental and health policies are. Why is that?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think that so often when we think about environmental issues, you know, and think of groups that are raising money for the environment or advocating for the environment, there's pictures of trees and pictures of polar bears and, um, you know, these environmental mascots, which is really important. But when it comes to air pollution, the main reason we control air pollution is to protect human health. So, you know, I think a, a better you know, mental image for someone thinking about air pollution or air quality is a kid with an inhaler or you know, someone on a respirator at the hospital because these are the health impacts from you know, having lung damage uh, from air pollution or having cardiovascular disease associated with air pollution. And the impacts occur uh, based on long-term exposure but really even on a day-to-day event. And this really came to the public's attention during the 1952 smog over London, where there was about a four-day or less than a week episode of air pollution. But the number of, of deaths during that time nearly quadrupled. And even as air pollution levels came back to normal after the winds blew through and cleared out, all the the buildup, the number of deaths per day stayed elevated for about three or four months after the pollution event. And so that's an unusual situation because you could just see that the air pollution levels go up and the number of recorded deaths go up so clearly. But that basic approach is what epidemiologists use today to assess how many kids check into the hospital with asthma attacks on high air pollution days or um, how COVID symptoms may be exacerbated during times that have high air pollution or in places that have higher air pollution. So it's, to me, um, a health issue more really than an environmental issue, even though, you know, it's a tomato tomato as to how you frame it. I think one more connection with public health that a lot of people don't realize is that when you look at the Impacts of public health around the world. There's a study that comes out every couple of years called the Global Burden of Disease. And this ranks the causes of death around the world, country by country, and includes everything from smoking and kidney disease to nutrition and water and air pollution. And the number one environmental risk to health is outdoor air pollution and indoor air pollution, thinking about, you know, Um, parts of the world where there may be cooking and heating over an open smoky fire is right up there as well. But I think a lot of people don't realize what a public health threat on a global basis air pollution really is.
2: It seems like public health related to the environment could maybe be a generational theme that's now gaining more awareness than it did in the past. I know I was taught about the Clean Air Act in school and Amy was saying that her teenage kids have been on her about having better environmental practices as well. Is that something you're hopeful about for the next generation?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot more awareness of environmental concerns among the next generation. And actually, I mean, just as one example, I saw that Gap has introduced a new Gap teen uh, line, which is made out of recycled materials. And I thought it was so interesting that they were pitching their environmental line toward teenagers. I think it really speaks to this idea that that there's just different sensibilities and, and a higher level of awareness among the next generation. You know, my kids, my older boy is twelve, my younger one is one. so they're not they're not pushing me to do things yet. We're still kind of helping to share information with them. But I will say that, you know, I think a lot of people and just say that, you know, gosh, this will be a big problem for our kids to solve. Like, oh, you know, it's too bad we're leaving this problem for them. And I feel like we don't have to leave this problem for them. You know, this is, you know, we're we're the parents here. We're the grownups. And there's no need to just kick it down the field um, another 10 or 20 or 30 years. To me, air pollution is a great example of how solutions can be implemented. And You know, when you think about air quality, the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, and immediately all of the six major pollutants regulated by the Clean Air Act started to go down. And they've been going down steadily since then. And air in the United States is cleaner now than it was 10 years ago, and cleaner then than it was 10 years before that, and all the way back to 1970. Cleaner, cleaner, cleaner. When you think about the ozone hole, over Antarctica. This was discovered in 1985 and in 1987, there was a binding international treaty on the books where the chlorofluorocarbons that were the problem started going down right away. And I think with climate change, it could be the same way. We have solutions ready to go on the shelf, cost-effective, and most people don't care where the electricity that powers their light or recharges their laptop comes from. They just want the electricity to come. So why not be getting it from clean sources? And if you think about cars, you know, I think most people don't have a problem with driving some cool new electric car that they don't have to take to be serviced very often and never have to put gas in. And you know, I think that a lot of the solutions are really desirable and attractive and are becoming more and more cost-effective. And so, you know, actually here on campus in the La Follette School, our colleague Greg Nemet, he wrote a, a book called How Did Solar Get So Cheap? Which really traces this amazing decline in the cost of solar and what we can learn about that in terms of other types of technologies. So I think we have the solutions available and we have a lot of examples of where successful policy making has led to environmental change and we're reaping the benefits. I'm an optimist, and so I'd really like to see the same happening for climate.
2: I think I speak for a lot of millennial or Gen Z age students when I say that it's kind of refreshing to hear you put more emphasis on action now rather than banking on the quote unquote next generation to handle environmental crises. Like I know I've had professors say something like, well, the outlook for climate is pretty bleak, but you all are so smart and energized and we'll be counting on you in the next 30 years to save the day. So even though they mean well by that, it's definitely nice to hear you have a slightly different take.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, of course it's not all going to be solved next year, but, and it's nice to be empowering leaders from the next generation to, to know that there are big changes that need to still be happening. But yeah, I just think that it's a little bit of a cop-out
2: to just push it on to, to you guys. Agreed. I like that. So let's talk about some of the things you're doing outside of UW-Madison too. You are also, in addition to your work at UW, the lab group director of Haycast, which is NASA's Health and Air Quality and Applied Sciences team, which sounds so cool already. Would you be able to give us some background on what your team does at NASA and maybe how it's kind of changed over time?
0: Sure. And, you know, first I'll just say, you know, I think most of the professors here at Wisconsin are doing a lot of cool research outside of their classroom. But to me, it really is integrated with what we're doing here, because I would not be able to be leading this team for NASA without my appointment at Wisconsin. And I work closely with undergraduates and graduate students here on campus to implement the work that we're doing. So, you know, one time I had a friend who was not affiliated with the university, and I told her about this NASA team. And she said, Wow, you know that must be a really big deal on campus. And I said, well, not really because all the professors are doing some cool, big, interesting thing. So I think it's really you know an exciting place to be here on campus because so many of the faculty and scientists and staff are involved in these like big picture cool things that just don't get talked about all the time. But now all, since you've given me a platform, I'm really happy to talk about what we're doing. So back in 2011, NASA decided to launch a team to make satellite data and other NASA data products more relevant and useful for air quality. And at the time, there's been a lot of what they call NASA science teams And these NASA science teams are where NASA funds researchers, including university professors and NASA researchers and other scientists, um, to use information from a specific instrument up in space because they launch these expensive instruments and they want them to be used. Um, This team, though, that was launched in 2011 was the first time that they funded a science team not around the instrument, but around the problem. And that first team was the air quality applied sciences team. And so I was the deputy leader of that team, which went on for five years. And then when they recompeted that team in 2016, they decided to expand the focus to health because, just like we were talking about earlier, the real reason we care about air quality is because we care about health. And by expanding it to health, we also broaden the group of potential users, stakeholders, organizations from city health departments to the World Health Organization. And there are organizations that specifically care about air pollution, like the EPA and state agencies and the Forest Service caring about forest fire smoke. But there are also organizations that are coming at these same issues from a health perspective. And um, we're excited to work with all of the above. So in 2016, I threw my name in the in the competition the, through a, um, a grant proposal to be the leader. And I was selected to lead the team from 2016 to 2020. And then it was recompeted in um, 2020 to uh, launch in 2021. And so I'm the leader of the team continuing from 2021 to 2025. And our team has um, 14 members where each of the members is a professor at a different university or a NASA scientist. And each one of us are working then with our own kind of sub teams. Like here at Wisconsin, I have collaborators, Jonathan Patz, who is the director of the Global Health Institute and Brad Pierce, who's our director of the Space Science and Engineering Center. And I have collaborators and co-investigators across the United States. And so sort of these teams, it's a team of teams you could say, and so all total, we have about 70 or more investigators that are all working for a common goal, which is trying to take all of the billions of dollars of satellite capabilities and other NASA platforms, tools, web uh, portals, and link them to on the ground decision-making needs. Um, For example, if you're wondering how um, smoke from a forest fire is affecting public health or how it might affect air pollution or how it should be integrated in air pollution control policies that can be very difficult if you don't know where the smoke is how bad it is where it's moving and you know in the western united states we don't have as many ground based air pollution monitors as you have in major cities or in the eastern united states so having a satellite up in space that can see these plumes of smoke and where they're moving and how they're stretching across the United States, this really provides a super valuable source of information. And that's just one example. A different example would be, you know, nitrogen dioxide is emitted from cars and trucks and power plants, and it can be seen quite well from space. In fact, you might've seen images of air pollution from satellites during the lockdowns of the early pandemic and sort of showing how air pollution decreased. And those maps were all of NO2 because it's this air pollution indicator that satellites can see quite well. And that can help us see fossil fuel burning around the world. It can help assess what people are breathing, even in um, countries that don't have air pollution monitors. Um, so, you know, I think these satellites can be used to answer air pollution and health questions that um, existing data sources just just couldn't answer. And part of our group is trying to build the community of users who are aware of these data products and to be connecting the dots to make sure that the data are being used correctly to answer important problems.
1: Yeah, totally. It's interesting to see the affordances that, you know, data from satellite gives you as compared to, you know, all the other tools and just the stark differences.
0: Yes, you know, I think that when people think about where, how do we know what's in the air? There's really three main sources. One are ground-based monitors. And here in the US, um, these monitors are run by states and tribes with the data uploaded to websites by the EPA. So actually it's really easy to access information from your nearest air pollution monitor, which is very good quality. And this is really used to determine compliance with existing regulations. The problem is these monitors are each very expensive. And so if you look for your nearby monitor, it may not be that nearby. Here in Madison, for example, we have one ozone monitor that is located on the east side um, near East High School. And so that's the only data point for ozone in the whole city. So that doesn't give enough information to be seeing what's happening on the west side versus the east side or the downtown versus the outlying areas. And we don't have any monitors for some of the other air pollutants that um, are regulated by the EPA. And one example is NO2. Actually the NO2 that satellites can see really well is one of the six pollutants regulated by the EPA under the Clean Air Act called criteria pollutants. And all of the NO2 monitors in Wisconsin are in the southeast part of the state over by Milwaukee. So we don't have any information on NO2 over Madison, but satellites are seeing it every single day. So there's this question of how can we use that satellite information to be connecting to the decision-making process and supporting um, good policies and regulations and science.
1: Speaking of going local, uh, we know that you are also involved in working with Madison Gas and Electric, or MGE to move towards zero carbon by 2050. Can you perhaps help us understand how your work and research is contributing to local, state, national, and even international efforts to help develop low
0: carbon-based technology and public policies? Yeah, so it's been really exciting to be working with Madison Gas and Electric over the past um, couple of years. and. Initially, you know, they uh, brought us in to look at computer model simulations that were considering how different energy scenarios on a global basis could help us get to the 1.5 degree warming limit, the the threshold that we want to stay under for climate change. And these global models, I don't run these these particular models, but uh, I have a lot of experience looking at different types of models, energy models, air models, atmospheric models. So we were able to download the data and analyze it. And the way that these particular models that they were interested in uh, work are kind of like if you're going on a diet. And let's say that you say, I want to lose 10 pounds. Well, there's a lot of different ways to get there. One is to change uh, how much you exercise, one is to change what you eat for breakfast, one is to, you know balance your carbs or your protein. Anyway, lots of different strategies. And there's this question of how do you combine these strategies to get to your target? And these computer models that MGE asked us to analyze basically do the same thing for global climate. We want to get to this target of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius on a global basis. What's the mix and match strategies of emissions from electricity, transportation, industry, and other sources? How much do different countries and groups of countries' contributions weigh in there? And what does it mean for a utility in a place like Wisconsin? And so that's what we were analyzing. What do these computer models that have already been run to answer this global question, this global diet question, um, how do we interpret those in a way uh, to help MGE kind of chart a path toward their carbon reductions? And so they had done this internally, and they had already set their goal of a net zero carbon emissions by 2050 before we got involved. Um, but they wanted to make sure that they were analyzing the information correctly, and to have kind of a fresh set of eyes come, run the numbers, dig a little deeper, and make everything very uh, transparent, public, reproducible. And so we wrote a report that is publicly available online, and we really stepped through where we got the data from, how we analyzed it, what assumptions we made, and what it means for pathways toward net zero carbon. Our current work with Madison Gas and Electric is kind of dovetailing from that question of, you know, low carbon strategies to my personal expertise in air pollution. And to me, these are really nicely connected in a Madison context because any individual city that reduces its carbon emissions is not going to feel the impact of those particular carbon emissions because carbon stays in the atmosphere for often 100 years or more. So when we uh, reduce our carbon emissions, we're, we're doing our part to address a global problem that requires action on a larger scale. But the good news is we do feel the direct local benefits of our air getting cleaner, because almost anything we do to reduce carbon emissions also reduces emissions of nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxides, particulate matter, and ozone, and these air pollutants that have direct negative health impacts. So even if the climate benefits are more diffuse, long-term, and global, the air pollution co-benefits, as they're sometimes called, are local and immediate. We can have changes in our energy system today and see cleaner air tomorrow. It's really like that. And so, that is one of the things we're looking at now is how do different low carbon strategies for Wisconsin and for Madison impact the air we're breathing and the health implications of that air and this kind of question about how do we tie energy solutions and climate solutions into local health benefits, local air quality benefits is also something we're doing for states across the upper Midwest with funding from the Joyce Foundation and the McKnight Foundation. And, you know, kind of zooming out, these are questions that are being explored on a global and international basis because anything you do for climate and energy is going to impact the air we breathe and the health of the people living nearby. And so I think it's been unfortunate in many ways that these have been disconnected, that a lot of the folks who are working in carbon and energy aren't necessarily taking into account these free, really free benefits that they're getting on health and air pollution for any change that you're doing to reduce carbon emissions.
2: You had mentioned before that it's a little bit difficult to monitor the air quality in really specific locations, in part because the equipment is expensive and I would assume that the setup is pretty involved. But we have seen reports suggesting that levels of dangerous chemicals in the air have declined over time, even here in Madison. Is that true? And if so, is the change due to individuals or policy?
0: It's a great question. Um, So, you know, I, I made the point earlier that the monitors are limited and satellite data can fill the gaps. And that's true. But we in the United States have thousands and thousands of air pollution monitors. So we have a lot of information on the chemicals that are in the air that we breathe. It's just that we're a very big country. And so even having thousands and thousands of monitors um, doesn't cover every place. Um, And the monitors that we have give great data and they've been in place depending on the exact monitor but going back decades. And we can see very clearly that air pollution is getting better across the United States, almost everywhere, almost continuously. And the reason for this are policies that have been put in place under the Clean Air Act. And these policies have mandated the use of um, technological controls. So it's not individual action for the most part, and it's not switching to renewables or energy conservation either. It's that we're driving even more miles than ever, but driving cleaner cars and using more energy than ever. But the facilities that are creating the electricity, for example, have expensive controls like sulfur dioxide scrubbers and and other equipment to take the chemicals out of the smokestack or the tailpipe before they're emitted into the air. And, you know, this is why, you know, if you've ever dreamed of getting a sports car from Germany, well, you just can't bring it right over to the United States because we have some of the strictest vehicle emission standards in the whole world. And so, you know, I think that even though when it comes to climate solutions, the U.S. is somewhat lagging behind, when it comes to health protective air pollution regulations, we are one of the leaders on a global basis. And certainly in in the early years, we were really setting the trend. And many countries have structured their air pollution control approach after what the United States has done under the Clean Air Act.
1: And yet, the air quality across the country, including the upper Midwest, were heavily impacted by wildfires. So I don't know. It kind of feels like a mixed bag. Can you talk about this phenomenon and whether we should be concerned about the future of wildfires?
0: Yeah, you know, I think wildfires are really worrisome trend because, of course, they're getting worse and worse, and that really is connected back to climate change. I mean, we see drier summers, hotter summers, but just the conditions that lead to fires. And indeed, the many studies have shown that the contribution of wildfires to air pollution is growing. And so, you know, the good news is that we're controlling a lot of our uh, human-made air pollution. The bad news is that the smoke from wildfires is very damaging to human health and is still contributing to bad air pollution. So, you know, I think that there's this challenge of how do we think about the Clean Air Act when we have this growing impact of air pollution from forest fires. And and I think actually, you know, understanding the impact of forest fires on air pollution, satellites have been a big part of helping to connect those dots. And so it sort of ties together a lot of what we're saying that if you're thinking about the policies for clean air and how do you make smart policies when you have this growing natural source of air pollution from, from forest fires? And how did those pieces fit together in a way that you're putting into place the right solutions for the problem?
2: And it's, it's pretty complicated. Kind of on that note, if I think back to the beginning of last year, at the beginning of the pandemic era, as soon as everyone went into lockdown, all of these pictures came out of there being like clear days for the first time in however many years in cities where there's usually smog covering a lot of the skyline or a lot of the view. Do you think that seeing the effect that was had when people stopped driving as much and factories stopped operating as heavily, do you think that had any lasting impact really on the way that people think about air pollution? Or was that kind of a one-off thing that will probably never happen again?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's a it's a real interesting question. I think, you know, sometimes with air pollution we think about these natural experiments, kind of weird things that happen that allow us to see how air is changing in ways that we normally could never structure in a laboratory. One example was, you know, way back when the Olympics were held in Atlanta and you had a lot less traffic in Atlanta on a few days, um, you could really see that the air got much cleaner. And there were a lot of stories written about that, about how it led to fewer cases of pediatric asthma ER visits and and really like clear changes in the air and clear changes in the health outcomes. During the pandemic time, it's hard to make those same connections because so much of our society was disrupted. That it's hard to know how do you learn from those extreme changes that were imposed for that short time. But there's certainly a lot of studies about trying to understand the chemistry of the atmosphere and the impacts. Um, One study that just came out, written by some of the members of the NASA team I lead at George Washington University, compared how the changes in air quality during the COVID lockdowns affected low-income communities and communities of color versus white communities and wealthier communities, and found that even under uh, lockdown conditions, many low-income communities and communities of color were still experiencing worse air quality during the pandemic lockdowns than wealthier and white communities experienced during typical pre-pandemic times. So I think that it definitely provided a lens to be thinking about environmental justice, atmospheric chemistry, sources of pollution, you know, within the, within the research community, how it will translate into public perceptions and interest in taking action. You know, I just don't know.
1: How can students that want to get involved get involved on campus to address issues at the intersection of environmental and health policy.
0: Well, you know, I think that's a great question. And here at Wisconsin, we have so many resources available around these issues. Um, One for undergraduates is the Global Health Certificate, which is the largest certificate on campus. And that's one way to approach these issues. I think taking classes, you know, whether you're more interested in it from a um, scientific perspective, we have atmospheric and oceanic sciences program that has a lot of expertise on satellite data. Um, We have the Nelson Institute that has interdisciplinary programs connecting science and human dimensions and decision making There's the public policy school, of course, and, you know, and I think just the fact that this political science podcast is so interdisciplinary to be covering these different topics. So, you know, I'd say that anybody who's even listening to this podcast is already tapping into some of these resources, but I would say that there's just a wealth of classes and uh, seminars and research opportunities on campus. And you know, I teach a class called Introduction to Air Quality, which is a 300-level class, but has no prerequisites because I want to encourage students from any background to learn about air quality, engage with it, and get up to speed in a way that can support their career goals or, or personal interests, what, whatever those may be. And I think, as we've already talked about, there's so many policy and legal and communications and psychology challenges related to air quality, that there's no reason for only, you know, the chemists and the engineers and the meteorologists to have this information. So I've really designed the class to be inclusive and interdisciplinary. And, you know, yes, we deal with some chemistry and a little bit of math and a little bit of meteorology, but try to make it in a news you can use sort of way so that wherever the background of students, they come out feeling like they can engage in these topics really at a professional level.
2: That's very cool to hear. Speaking of other things that are happening on campus, we hear that you're participating in the La Follette Climate Forum that's coming up soon. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that conference?
0: Right. So the um, I've just been on the planning committee of the La Follette uh, Climate Conference, which is co-chaired by um, my colleagues, Greg Nemet and Morgan Edwards. And I think it's just really Exciting! How the La Follette program is taking on the climate issues from a solutions perspective, and really trying to, you know, harness the public policy expertise of La Follette into this wide-ranging global issue. And I think it sort of speaks to the fact that now is this time, you know, code red for humanity is sort of something that's been coming out of a lot of the discussions around climate and, you know, the science moms program that I am part of is, you know, moving forward like later is too late as a, as a message. And, you know, I feel like having this climate conference now just, It has a resonance that it's not just an academic inquiry, but it's really uh, a way to be bringing thinkers from different perspectives um, and different organizations together to be hammering out climate conversations together. And I think it's a great opportunity for students who are interested in learning more about climate change to get involved, and especially from the political science department, because you know, the, the fact that it's being led by La Follette, it's not going to be veering off into the radiation characteristics of the atmosphere or these kind of uber technical science topics that may not be relevant from a decision making and politics perspective. So I think it's a great opportunity for the community that may be listening to this podcast.
1: And as we come to kind of a close here of this podcast, have we missed anything? Uh, what
0: haven't we talked about that we should have? I think we've covered a lot of ground here, you know, and I think just having these conversations from different perspectives is is so refreshing to me. It's just nice to connect with all of you. And if there's any students in the political science department who want to get more connected with air quality, they're certainly welcome to contact me directly. I love working with researchers in my research group, and I love talking about careers and opportunities. So, um, you know, I'm happy to be a resource for students interested in air pollution, health, and energy. I actually do have one more um, thing to say for folks who are thinking about graduate school. And I think that one of the problems with sometimes these interdisciplinary topics is it's hard to know what kind of programs exactly fit it. You might find one class, but like, what if you want to get a a degree or a master's degree or MBA or whatever? And one of the programs that I'm very active in here at Wisconsin is a graduate program called the Energy Analysis and Policy Program or EAP. And what I really love about the EAP certificate is that it's a graduate program that can be added on to almost any graduate program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and it has students from all different departments and most of the classes and requirements can be completed in the same time that you would do any other degree. So most of the students complete EAP was no extra time or no extra money than what they would be spending on their graduate program anyway. And so then they're getting a second credential that opens them up for a wide range of careers that they may not have considered before. So one of the things we're trying to do with the EAP program is to make students around the world think of Wisconsin as a place to be advancing energy related and energy policy related graduate studies, whether they want to add it onto an engineering program or add it onto a public policy or environmental studies type of approach. So, you know, I think thinking about pathways for students to succeed and get credentialed and build careers in these interdisciplinary, you know, real world energy, environment, health um, spaces is something that um, I have thought a lot about. And I think, you know, to me, one of the most exciting opportunities is this EAP certificate because students can really tailor um, a graduate experience that fits their own goals.
2: That's an awesome note, thank you for adding that. I'm going to end with just one fun question for our listeners. We're wondering for new students or for people who just don't know much about the Madison area um, nature opportunities yet, do you have any recommendations for spending a day off or like a weekend outdoors this year?
0: Well, one that I'll say, and this is partly because of the kid in me, but also since I have kids, but I really love the Vilas Zoo. Here on campus. Uh, Madison is one of the only cities in America where the zoo is free. So you can just walk through. It's not a big commitment. And, you know, to me, it just is um, so inspiring to see these different animals from around the world and learn more about nature. And it's right adjacent to um, Lake Wingra, which I think is, you know, that's my favorite lake here in Madison because um, it's a little bit smaller and they don't, uh, and it's surrounded mostly by the Arboretum. So, you know, I just find Lake Wingra very peaceful and you can rent a boat and go kayaking on Lake Wingra. It's right adjacent to the zoo. So my perfect day would be walking through the zoo, renting a kayak, going kayaking on Lake Wingra and then um, maybe getting some hot chocolate. That's pretty perfect.
1: Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to us. Uh, This was a great conversation.
0: Thank you guys so much. I loved it. And uh, good luck with the podcast. And I look forward to listening to your future episodes.
1: For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers
2: and Claire Salmi
1: and produced by Amy Gangle.